our fifth lesson on this second chapter. And the section of this chapter I want to start tonight starts a, a, a new section where Paul changes the theme just a little bit. If you remember, he started out this chapter talking about the depths of depravity of the human heart. And he shows us the condition that all of us are in before we come to know Christ and how bad a condition that man was left in because of the fall. And the first part of this chapter is designed to bring us to the place where we have no hope in ourselves, where we can't look to anything that we can do. And we need to understand that we need the, uh, the enabling, life-giving power of the Lord Jesus Christ in order for us to become spiritually alive servants of God. The Bible teaches us that we are dead in trespasses and sin, and we must be brought to life before we can believe in Christ. Now, verse number 4 of this chapter is a turning point, because there Paul shows us the initiative that God takes in salvation, and he moves from that point into a discussion of God's grace. And of course, by definition, we understand that grace excludes all of man's righteousness as any kind of a ground for salvation. But then Paul comes here to verse number 11, and he begins a new section. And his intention here is to show us the unity of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of our common faith. Now, the question that I want to ask tonight is, should we segregate or should we congregate? Is there a basis for fellowship always, or are there sometimes restrictions that should be exercised because of different views of the faith. Now, I believe that some people would come to this portion of Scripture and they would say that this disallows any kind of divisions among Christians and people would demand that we come together and and be one no matter what our differences are. So this evening, I just want to give you an overview of these verses and we're going to come back at a later time and we're going to break all this down into some different parts and talk about the particulars of this passage, but a little bit unusual message tonight. Let's stand, if you would, please, for the reading of God's Word. And we want to look at chapter 2, verse number 11. We'll read down through uh, verse number 22. Ephesians 2, verse number 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body on the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you'd help us as we uh, talk about this subject tonight. Help our eyes to be open to the truth of your word, and we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. After reading this part of the scriptures, these few verses from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down to the end of the chapter, when we read this, we can see that it's evident that God does not want us to have any kinds of divisions among Christians. In this church age in which we live, God does not want us to have divisions. And yet at the time that Paul is writing this, there were in fact many great divisions. And those divisions existed among the people because it's always been natural. It's just a part of our human nature that we will segregate into groups rather than to congregate as a whole. And in Paul's time, there were divisions in many different areas. There were slaves and slave owners. There were racial divisions between Jews and Gentiles. There were national divisions between the Greeks and the Romans, and also between non-Greeks and non-Romans. There were relational divisions between husbands and wives. And each of these barriers that we put up between us is a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. Now today, of course, we are all very well aware of barriers because those same barriers that I've just talked about are in existence in our world today. Now tonight, as we look at this subject, I believe that we have to make a determination about which kind of barriers are legitimate and which barriers are not. And the question is, are there grounds, is there any grounds for separation among Christians? Are there some things that we really ought to separate over? Now, there are three areas that I want to speak about this evening that hopefully will give us some insight into how and when to segregate and when to congregate. Now, first of all, I want to discuss this, and that is, how should we integrate? How should we integrate, or or what is the basis upon which we can have fellowship with one another? Now, as Paul writes this section of the Scripture, he's dealing mainly with a problem that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's speaking about a division between those groups of people, and the great dividing line between Jews and Gentiles is the issue of circumcision. And circumcision, of course, is the seal. It's the sign that God gave to Israel to show them that they were his chosen people. And God gave the Jews circumcision to show that he had, he had uh, singled them out from all the nations of the world, that he had set them apart, that they are different from all the people of the world, and God gave his special attention and favor to the Jews. And we're all aware of our study in the book of Acts that Uh, it was a very difficult thing for the Jewish Christians to begin to accept the Gentiles. And I don't think there's any doubt that the chief reason why they wouldn't was over this issue of circumcision. And when the Jews finally did become convinced that God had also uh, brought the Gentiles into relationship with him, yet one of the things that they did not want to give up is this rite of circumcision. And you'll find by reading the scriptures that this is one of the things that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem demanded of Gentile Christians. They said, we want you to be circumcised before we can have fellowship with you. And in this discussion in Ephesians 2, Paul points out, well, yes, it's true. God did have a chosen people. God did choose out the Jews, but now he has permitted the Gentiles to also come into a relationship with him. And he expresses this in verse 2, the Jews were set apart, there was a difference. And he says in verse number 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, speaking of the Gentiles, ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Then next Paul goes on to say that the only way that the Gentiles could ever have been brought into relationship with God was because of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on to explain those Old Testament laws and how there were barriers that were set up because of those laws. But now, he says, those things have been demolished. Those walls have been torn down. And so the rites of circumcision and Old Testament laws that kept the Jews and Gentiles apart, those things have been done away with. They have been abolished because of the cross of Christ. And so Paul tells them that now, Jews and Gentiles alike, they are to be unified through this one spirit that has called them in hope of one gospel. Then he goes on in verse 19 and he declares that all those who once were strangers and once were foreigners from God's promise have now become fellow citizens. Now they are citizens of the same country, the same heavenly country. And because their citizenship is the same, then there ought to be a basis for unity. We're all members of this one heavenly country. And so that's what brings us together. Now, I'd like to call that tonight our positional unity. Our positional unity, because our positional unity is a common belief in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And our common Or positional unity is that all believers have the same Holy Spirit that's living inside of us. So no matter where you go in any part of the world, no matter how diverse that people might be, no matter what their race, what their nationality, no matter what their ethnicities or their customs, yet we are all one in Christ and we have the same Spirit that lives inside of us. Now that's why that we can have a missionary come to preach to us And we can rejoice in the efforts of that missionary in reaching lost souls in his part of the world. We rejoice in that. And whether or not we dislike the politics of the countries in which they go, uh, whether or not we dislike a person's nationality, yet we still understand that and rejoice that believers are being made. People are being preached or reached with the gospel. And I think about our missionary, Alexander de Chalandeau. And you remember how that, that uh, in the height of the Cold World, a uh, Cold War rather, he was smuggling Bibles into communist countries. And people were being saved because he was taking the gospel to them. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in, a, in an era when uh, we ha- I had one of these phobias. And my phobia was I did not like Russians. I don't like Russians because we we're always afraid of nuclear war with Russia. And so most Americans really didn't like the Russians because we were convinced that given the opportunity, they would nuke us at just about any moment if they could get away with that. But even though we didn't like the politics of Russia and we didn't like those people because of that, we could still support a man like Alexander de Chalandeau because he was taking the gospel to those people. And those people need the gospel. And we realize then, as we do now, That the only hope for the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the only basis upon which the world can have peace. So the thing that unites all of the people of the world is this common need of the gospel. And once we have been saved, it's the same Holy Spirit that lives in all of us. And that's a reason for unity. So we have positional unity. And we have that unity, unity despite social and political divisions. And that's because we are all fellow citizens of the same heavenly country. As I was studying this lesson, I came across a, an illustration about some warring tribes that were in Africa. This is a true story. I'm not going to relate all of the story. But there were several tribes in Africa, and these tribes had always been at war with one another. These were people that were killing each other on a regular basis. But there were missionaries that went to these tribes separately, and they preached the gospel to them, and those people in those tribes were converted And the next thing that you know, there's no more war. 
They're sitting down with one another and they're conversing with one another and they have fellowship based upon this same Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ that lives inside of them. And that's the positional unity that I'm speaking of. We're all saved and we all occupy the same position in the eyes of God. So how should we integrate on the basis of positional unity? But that's not the way it always works out. Because we still have these divisions. We have positional unity. But I also want you to notice that we have our practical disunity. And what I mean by the practical disunity is just the realism that divisions do exist. Now, folks, we have to admit this. We are so thankful for those missionaries who preach the gospel on the other side of the world. But we are also thankful that those people are over there and we are over here. I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. You may remember that when Peter... Uh, went to preach to Cornelius that he came back with the report of how the Holy Spirit had come down on those Gentiles. And we read in Acts 11 verse 18, when they heard these things, when he reported to the the Jewish Christians in, in Jerusalem, when they heard these things, they held their peace and they glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, they glorified God that these Gentiles could be saved. But you may remember as we went on studying the book of Acts in our later discussions, what did we find? We find that the Jerusalem church started to drop off of the scene. The Jerusalem church became unimportant and started to fade away. And it was the Antioch church that began to be the one that sent out the missionaries, that assimilated Gentiles into their fellowship. And these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem did not want to associate with the Gentiles and they went back into their legalism over these things like like, uh, the circumcision and so forth. And so they were unwilling to accept the Gentiles. And that disunity was caused by their overwhelming prejudices. Now, there was no integration because these Jews wanted the Gentiles to be judged. They didn't want Gentiles to be saved. They want Gentiles to be judged. And you can imagine why. I mean, who is it that's oppressing them? It's the Roman government that's over them. They're being oppressed by the Romans. And that helps you to understand a little bit why that when Christ came, the Jews were not looking for a spiritual kingdom. They wanted a physical kingdom. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom right then. And that's all because of this prejudice. They hated the Gentiles. Well, when Christ comes... Or came, the Bible shows us that all of those prejudices must be laid aside. And that's because Christ has done the very same thing for Jews as he did for Gentiles. And the Bible teaches us that God is not a respecter of persons. And so anyone can be saved. Anyone who will trust Christ will be saved. Christ is the basis for unity, not of disunity. Now let's move on to the second area of discussion. And let's talk for just a moment about how we should separate Is there a reason to separate, and does the Bible give us any authority for separation? Well, I believe that it does. Now, we could take this portion of Ephesians, and we could say, well, that's all that God has to say about this subject. But in fact, it's not. In fact, it's not all that Paul has to say about this subject. Paul is addressing here a need to understand how that God no longer separates people based upon this national selection. And whether we want to believe it or not, we have to accept this truth that God definitely did separate nations before Christ came. Israel was God's chosen nation. All of the other nations were not God's chosen nation. And God 
in essence, had no dealings with the Gentiles. Now, it, it seems very strange to me that people have so much trouble dealing with this fact that God chose some people rather than others. And they have a lot of problem dealing with that. But look at the scriptures. For 2,000 years of, of history, from the time of Abraham all the way to the time of Christ, God practically excluded everyone but the Gentiles. And so now we're worried the fact that God may choose somebody. He was always making choices. That's what he's always done. Now let me give you, though, two areas of separation. Paul is, is talking about a change that happens when Christ came, and, and he tore down the walls of separation. But there are still some walls of separation that must be maintained. Now let me give you two of these areas. Two areas of separation. Number one is personal separation. How should we separate? We should maintain personal separation. Now, usually when we're talking about personal separation, we're thinking about how the world thinks, how the world acts, what the world does. And we want to separate ourselves from the things of the world. I agree with that. We certainly as Christians ought to separate ourselves from a worldly lifestyle. But I'm going to go a step further than that because I also believe that we need to separate ourselves from certain Christians because of their lifestyles. If they're not doing what they're supposed to do, we should separate from those Christians. And folks, this is something that can happen right in your very own church. There may be some in the church that are not doing what they should be doing. And those people become a bad influence on you if you run with those people. And so I think that you ought to separate from them before they influence you negatively. I think that goes for young people. I think it goes for old people alike. Whenever you hear somebody who is who's speaking against the things that go on to the church, you ought to separate yourself from that person. Now, one of the things you know that, that I have never intended to be, I have never intended to be a pastor that investigates everybody, looking for just some kind of little quirk that you have in your habits, and then try to make an issue of those things. I'm not going to be a taskmaster over the people of the church, and I'm not going to crack, crack a whip every time somebody steps out of line. Now, let me tell you, though, the best way that you can keep me from being that kind of a pastor, the best way is to police yourselves. The best way is to watch yourselves. And so when you see something that's going on that's against what we preach from this pulpit, and when you see lifestyles, and when you see things that people shouldn't be doing, then what you ought to do is lovingly separate yourself from those people. Now, I just happen to be one who believes that we're big boys and girls. And we can decide the difference between right and wrong. And we know, folks, we know what the difference between right and wrong is. And so you don't need me to be your dictator. And I don't want to be your dictator. I want to be your co-laborer. But I'll tell you this, and I assure you this, I will not stand by and let a few people destroy our principles. I won't let people corrupt us from the inside. Whenever intervention is necessary, intervention will be the tactic. If we have to do that. Now, folks, that is why I believe in church discipline. We have church discipline because we need to protect the body. Now, folks, I'm all for restoring people. We pray for people. We love people. We want to restore people. But we also want to protect this body. And if that means that we have to remove someone from our membership because they are not living the way God wants them to live, and they bring a reproach upon this church and upon this ministry, then they will be gone because God expects us to handle things in that matter. Now, manner, now, personal separation is a huge issue. 
And I do believe that we need to be careful about our dress and our habits and our attitudes and all those things. But I also believe that separation has been used wrongly by many pastors. It's been used wrongly because personal separation has become a means of control of people. And pastors have wrongly substituted those things as a gauge of a person's spirituality. Now, don't anybody think that I don't believe in personal separation because I do. But quite frankly, my approach is going to be different from most fundamentalists. I believe that uh, we ought to practice what we practice out of a pure heart of love for the Lord and not because there's somebody who stands over us with a ruler and slaps our hands if we don't fit their definition of what holy means. Now, I believe in preaching the Word of God. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is able to bring conviction on people, and it's not my job to do that. And I don't see any place in the Bible where a New Testament pastor has been given the authority to be the Lord over the people. And a matter of fact, that is exactly the opposite of what the Word of God says. We are not to be lords over God's people. Well, let's let the Holy Spirit do His own work, and let's don't try to interfere with that. Now, what has happened with many fundamental groups is they have this standard... And their standard becomes their standard of judgment. Now, one of the things that I hate is judgmental ministries. I don't like judgmental Christians. I believe in personal separation, but I do not believe in long-nosed, pious Christians who watch people and insist that you keep their standards and put that in the place of Holy Spirit conviction. Now, do you know what I think vindicates the proper biblical approach? I think you just need to look around this church and look at the transformation of this church. Maybe we don't have every hair cut off the ears. And maybe there are some ladies who wear pants. Maybe there is a short skirt that shows up once in a while. But that's not the normal thing. And what we see here is love and care and concern for the membership and for one another. And that is a transformation away from the stress and the tenseness of policing everybody. That's a big difference. Then you know what happens when you operate this way? People do begin to grow in the Lord. Bad habits start to disappear. The clothing does start to become right. The language gets cleaned up. The hair does get cut. Our associations do become better because that's the biblical method. It's sanctification through the preaching of the Word of God, letting the Holy Spirit do His operation And it's not sanctification by making a long list of rules and regulations for people to keep. And that's why we don't do it here. Now, we're going to have offenders. Most certainly, we will have offenders using this method because we're not slapping everybody that doesn't look just like we want them to look. But all of us need to remember, we are in different stages of sanctification. I can't be your sanctification for you. That is you. You have an answer to to God yourself. So we protect the church as much as we can, but we're not going to slap people around because they just don't look the way we think that they ought to look. We will preach the truth from God's Word and let the Holy Spirit convict people to do what they should do. So personal separation is an important issue, but it's also important how it's implemented. Now, how else should we separate? Well, I believe that the Bible also teaches ecclesiastical separation. Now, this is a very... A vastly misunderstood area. What is ecclesiastical separation? Well, the word ecclesiastical comes from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means congregation, it means assembly, it means essentially the church. It's the called out. 
and it has reference to the church. So ecclesiastical separation means separation based upon church doctrine. Now, has anybody ever noticed that there are a lot of churches out there? Are you aware of that? I'm using the term loosely, of course, but there are a lot of churches out there, and people have a lot of differences of opinion. And all kinds of doctrines are being taught out there. But on our sign out front, there is one word that describes, or at least it should describe, our church doctrine. And it's the word Baptist. And when you see Baptist on that sign, that should tell you that our doctrinal interpretations are different from somebody who has Methodist on their sign and somebody who has Catholic or Presbyterian or Assemblies of God. We are different. We're Baptist, and that makes us different from those groups. Now, some people say, oh, yes, I I understand there are differences, but those differences are very minor, and those differences really don't matter. Well, for some Baptist churches, I would say that was true. It probably is true. It probably doesn't matter a whole lot. The differences are very minor, and most Baptist churches wouldn't have any trouble at all assimilating with some of these other groups. Not a bit of problem. But folks, when you see Baptist on our sign, it's very much different from all these other groups. When you see Baptist on our sign, you can be sure that the doctrines that are taught inside of here are distinctive They have not been mixed. They've not been flavored with everybody else. Now, as you know, I'm I'm fond of saying that we are historical Baptists. And we still preach the same doctrines that we think are preached by Jesus and the apostles. And we are still preaching in this church the same doctrines that were maintained by our Baptist forefathers. We haven't given up on those. And I've also told people, if, if I didn't think the Baptists were right, I'd be something else. The reason I'm a Baptist is because I believe we're teaching the right doctrines. So I am a Baptist because I agree with old-time Baptist doctrines. Now, some, uh, since we're old-time Baptists, uh, folks, that means that we're not going to compromise our belief with anyone for the sake of unity. We're not going to be unified with anybody who doesn't preach the truth of God's Word. I don't think that the Bible demands for us to do that. As a matter of fact, I think that we are commanded by Scripture to separate ourselves from those who preach another gospel. You see, folks, the truth of the gospel trumps all attempts at unity. Now, here's the problem. Many churches are trying to preach unity without regard to the gospel. But what we understand... There is no unity without the gospel. The gospel is the very basis of why we can be unified. Now, today, everybody has this generic term, Christian. And everybody uses the term Christian, and they've got this fanciful idea of this universal, invisible church out there somewhere that nobody's ever seen before. But just the fact that you call yourself a Christian or that you have some kind of leanings towards Christianity, that we're all one big part of this great universal, invisible church, and on the basis of that, we should have unity. I'm telling you right now, that is a lie of the devil. The devil destroys the truth with that kind of thinking because what he wants to do is use that as a tool to mix up our doctrine. Now, he perverts doctrine with that kind of thinking. I'll tell you this. Folks who preach that you can lose your salvation are not preaching the same gospel that we preach. And people who believe in keeping of sacraments for their salvation are not preaching the same gospel that we preach. And people who ignore the church ordinances. And they're preaching a wrong mode of baptism. The wrong reason for baptism. The wrong authority for baptism. The wrong candidates for baptism. They're not teaching the right doctrine. 
Now, those very things are the things that make us distinctively Baptist in our approach. And folks, I do not think as a church we have the authority to alter any doctrines from the New Testament to suit our fancies. We just have to preach the Word of God. Now, this is one of the reasons why, primarily, that we baptize all who come to us from other faiths. If you don't come from another Baptist church of like faith and order, then we will rebaptize you. Why is that? Because we believe in the unity of one faith, not the unity of a dozen's faith, dozen faiths. Now, here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I'm not interested in mixing up our church with many lords, many faiths, and many baptisms. We're not going to do that. We have to maintain our doctrinal integrity. And so that means that we will maintain ecclesiastical separation. Now, folks, what that means is that we might even have to separate ourselves from from some Baptists. We might have to separate ourselves from them if they don't maintain their doctrinal integrity. And I believe that it's right for us to separate, practice separation on a secondary level and also on a tertiary level if that becomes necessary. And do you know that that is really a hot button among many Baptist associations? Now, I want to relate to you just a moment my experience in the conference that I attended last, uh, it was last month, yes, in April in Reno. Most of you know I decided that I would attend the GARBC conference. If you don't know what that means, GARBC stands for General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Maybe some of you don't know this, but in 1971, this church joined the GARBC. That was long before my time. And uh, since I have been here, the church has had practically no dealings with the association. But I did receive an invitation to the association meeting, so I thought that what I'm going to do, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to see, are there some possibilities for fellowship on a personal level and also on a church level? So I go to Reno on a fact-finding mission. That's what I'm there for, aside from the gambling part of it. I was there to do the fact... No, actually, I was there for the fact-finding mission. And uh, I wanted to see, should we be a part of the GRBC? And I met some good pastors there. I met especially a couple of very good pastors that were doctrinally straight as an arrow. They were right with us, and I had some good fellowship with those people. But there were also some very disconcerting things that I found there. Right now, the GARBC in California is in the middle of a fight over this issue of ecclesiastical separation. And there are some of them that want to be more liberal in their approach and be more inclusive. And there are others in the organization that want to bring the association back to their old-time principles of associating only with sound, fundamental, uh, truth-preaching Baptist churches. Now, the issue over this whole thing and why this was all being discussed at this conference is because of secondary associations. Now, what that means is if you fellowship with a church that is not doctrinally correct, then I won't fellowship with you. And I think that's a good biblical principle. What does the Bible say? Evil communications corrupt good manners. And so if you associate with someone that you shouldn't associate, then eventually you are going to be corrupted. And then if I associate with you, what's going to happen to me? I'll become corrupted as well. I don't think it takes a genius to figure this whole thing out. That seems pretty simple and biblical to me. 
But this is the very thing that's happened to many of these association churches. Maybe their primary associations were good to start out with, but their secondary associations became a problem. And the secondary association corrupted the primary associations. Does everybody follow me on this? And finally, everybody gets mixed up in the whole thing, and everybody gets corrupted through this. So by extension then, the first church that was good gets corrupted because of their associations. So this is the issue that was taking place in this conference. I didn't know that when I walked in. I had no idea what I was walking into. And actually, what was happening, there was an attempt by the California Association and the leadership of this association to sway the opinions toward these ecumenical associations. Now, you can imagine my consternation when I sit down And in the first session, I learned that this session is being conducted by a parachurch organization. Now, parachurch simply means that it's not a church, but by extension, it's doing the work of the church. Let me tell you what I think about that. The Bible does not give anyone authority to do the Lord's work except the New Testament church. There are no other organizations in the New Testament except the church. And so nobody has that authority. I believe the Bible teaches us all work is to be done through the local New Testament church. That's why we have to have sponsorship for missionaries. That's why we don't endorse any missionaries that don't come out of the local church. You realize what would happen if we didn't? If everybody just decided, well, you don't have to be a part of a church to be a missionary. We'll just go start up a church over here. You know what happens? We get the first church of Brian. And we get the first church of Jason and first church of Bill. That's what happens. We have to come out under church authority. I believe that's the right way to do it. So you can imagine, you know, I'm pretty upset. I'm sitting here listening to this. And uh, that's the main focus of the meeting. It's this parachurch organization. Well, the first speaker who gets, to get up, uh, gets up to speak for this organization happens to be a Presbyterian who came out of a church that had just changed its doctrinal positions. That's how, I mean, they changed to another denomination. I mean, that's how grounded they are in the truth. The second guy that gets up is a Southern Baptist preacher, and he spends his time telling us about the virtues of the NIV Bible. Well, about now, you can imagine, my face is pretty red, steam's coming out of my ears. But then here comes another fella from the GRBC in in Ohio. He's their representative from the state of Ohio. He comes in, and he tells us how we should be willing to accept all of this garbage. And we ought not to exclude everybody because of our doctrinal differences. So here's my determination. I'm listening to all this, and I'm deciding what are we going to do. And I decide we can't have fellowship under those circumstances. I'm not going to drag our church into all that mess. Now, here's what happened, though. I was talking to these two really good fellows, two two good, strong church people who believe the truth. They're fighting the liberalism. And when they found out what I believed about the issue, then they asked me if I would stay in the association to help them fight this fight. So I'm considering, I was thinking about that, you know. Uh, um, their agreement was that if the association can't be turned around, then they will part themselves from it, and then we can have fellowship among themselves. So that's where I am right now. I'm kind of stuck in this position. Do we fight? What do we do? Well, first of all, I'm not taking the church into the thing. That's not going to happen. On a personal level, I may decide to fight with them. I don't know. I do understand that the national organization is better than the California Association. But I'll tell you this, if the California Association does not turn around and they persist in this, even though, you know, right now our church is on their roster in name only, but it won't be very long. 
if they don't do something about it. There's not a change that takes place. And I hope that you'll back me up on that because it takes a church vote to withdraw. All right. So that's the problem. We have this ecclesiastical separation. But here we've also got another problem, and that is that the churches that we have fellowship with right now, we are the ugly stepchild. And the reason I say that is because of our differences on the issue of decisional regeneration. Now, they believe that a person is regenerated simply by a decision that they make for Christ, whereas I believe and our church believes that we are regenerated through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings us to Christ. And folks, I'm not changing my position on that. I don't care if we have unity with nobody. We're going to stay right with the truth on this. So it's the problem of ecclesiastical separation. And I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg with this problem. Now, if you don't understand something I've said tonight on this, come and ask me. I'll be happy to tell you more about this. But we need to separate on the basis of ecclesiastical separation. We're not going to join up with people who will not preach the truth of God's word and we will not be corrupted by false doctrine. And that means if we're stuck out here by ourselves in Roanoke Park, California, and we fall off the edge when California breaks off in the earthquake, we'll just have to go with them because that's what's going to happen. Now, let me finish the last point quickly tonight. Number three, how should we cooperate? How should we cooperate? In other words, what things are there that are not reasons for us to separate? Well, first of all, quickly... We should cooperate racially. A person's race is not a reason to withdraw fellowship. Now, that is a problem among those Jewish Christians way back in the first century. They believed that they were racially superior to the Greeks and the Romans, and the Greeks and the Romans believed the same thing. And so race was a very divisive factor. Now, as we all know, race relations have have driven divisions in this country almost from the outside or outset. But we should not exclude people based on race. There is no such thing as racial superiority. So we ought to cooperate racially. Now, I know there are, there are some big questions to tackle on race, and I don't care who you are. We all have problems with race in some way or another. And if you say that you don't, you're kidding yourself because there are prejudices out there, and we're all involved in those in some way or another. And so a part of the question may be, is there a time when God does sanction racial divisions? I'm not going to go into that. I don't want to talk about that. God has the races for a reason. Maybe we'll talk about that sometime. But the thing that we need to consider here is that race does not make one person superior to another person. God does not save people depending upon what race that they belong to. Secondly, we cooperate economically. And what I mean is a person's economy which is the thing that often drives them socially, that is not a reason for exclusion. Now, let's face it, folks, we also have problems there as well. Some of us do not want to associate with somebody who's a little bit lower on the economic and the social scale. And the Bible addresses this. James warned the church. He said, now, if there's come somebody into you and he comes in his fine clothing and looks like he's got a little bit of dough on him, and you usher him over to the finest seat and sit him there and you push the poor people off to the side somewhere, you are guilty of fostering divisions and separations, and it ought not to be that way. And so rich or poor and everybody in between, they all need the gospel of Christ, and we preach it to all of them alike. So we will go into poor neighborhoods, we will go into rich neighborhoods, and all those in between, because the economy or a person's economy should not be a reason to separate from them. 
Thirdly, how should we cooperate? Thirdly, salvifically. Now, that just simply means it's our job to get people saved. No matter what their color, their ethnicity, no matter their economic or their social backgrounds, all people alike need the gospel. Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And folks, that takes a great cooperative effort from all of us. That means that we have to go personally, locally, right here in our neighborhoods. But it also means that we are to support with our tithes and our offerings a global position. And that is that we give missionaries money to go and reach people in other parts of the world where we can't go ourselves. So we are to cooperate in that effort as well. And so we may cooperate with missionaries that come out of local churches, and we believe that's necessary. Even missions that that come out of uh, uh, boards, like we support uh, some missionaries out of BIMI and uh, some other mission boards, but every one of those missionaries has to have a local church sponsorship. But we can cooperate on the basis of a mission board by by that mission board sending out missionaries. And I think it's proper to do that because we have to have a part in reaching people around the world with the gospel of Christ. So should we segregate or should we congregate? Well, I say this. Segregate from those who corrupt biblical teachings. Congregate with those who follow this book. Stick with the book. Now, we will cooperate always with good Baptist people who preach salvation by grace through faith alone and, I mean, at the word and there, hold true to historic Baptist Bible principles. That's who we will cooperate with. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. Lord, it's a difficult subject perhaps for some people, and uh, maybe everybody's not on board. I don't know, but I just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, help us to understand uh, what we need to do concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who, we should, who should we separate from? Who should we work with? And Lord, we just pray that you would reveal that to us. And we know the answers. It's in your word, based upon the truth of your word. So Lord, help us as a church to do your will always. Bless our people tonight in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's